this week on the Managing Remote Teams podcast. One of the things we've tried to do with our staffing up is utilize a model that's very common in open source software. And open source software, it seems almost completely bizarre to people who've not been in this industry. But the idea is that you have a code base that's out there and hundreds, if you're really lucky, maybe thousands of people all over the world can just make contributions to it. And because they're hopefully skilled developers or people following the spec, you can actually have meaningful contributions. And these things can just get formed out of the ether. I, I think of it a little bit like a, a home building in Amish communities, which is just everybody from the village just starts coming and helping to build the home. Building the barn. The home is, yeah, exactly. The barn or the home is raised up. It's a similar thing. And it's very async and it's just cool. And a lot of great software is created this way. I think that makes some people nervous, but there's really just a lot of the amazing core software that we use in so many applications today is developed in this manner. You are listening to the Managing Remote Teams podcast, the show taking a kind, cool-headed, and fair look at remote teams. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade as a practitioner. I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. This is Luke Shermer, and if you are new here, I'm the author of the book Align Remotely, and I help teams thrive and achieve more together when working remotely. And you can find out more at alignremotely.com. In this episode of the Managing Remote Teams podcast, I speak with Trevor Ewan, the CEO of the Southport Technology Group. And they are a technology consulting company specialized in serving non-technology businesses. And we get rather practical in this episode, specifically exploring flowcharts as an example of a visual tool that you can use to collaborate. And even though they primarily come from the software worlds, I think it's a really useful way to communicate a complicated idea visually, which if you're distributed or asynchronous, it's actually quite a useful characteristic. And so in this episode, we will cover why the ethos and management practices behind building open source software can be quite powerful, even in non-technology businesses, why flowcharts enable asynchronous workflows, and also how to use flowcharts to break down a complicated scenario so that anyone can understand it, even a non-technical user. So without further ado, here's the show. Trevor, welcome to the Managing Remote Teams podcast. Thanks for having me, Luke. Can you say a few words about what you do and how you got to where you are at the moment? Yeah, so I'm a software engineer by training, and I think that's probably the most relevant point of information when thinking about my background. When you do this, you start up your career, usually just taking orders from the older developers and learning how to fix bugs and work through the application lifecycle. And because I graduated from college in 2010, I entered a terrible labor market. So I was ready to take whatever came my way. And I had the good fortune of ending up at a digital agency and started working with some of the bigger companies in New York that weren't specifically tech companies, but had a big tech component to their business. I think about banks or, or media companies and the like. 
And as I went through that, I did like a lot of people do at that time. I joined a startup at one point, then joined another small agency and made a lot of twists and turns to the point where I would say I'm relatively self-sufficient in terms of the skills that you can gain in the workplace and want to go out on my own and innovate more on the business model side, as well as, you know, continue to do uh, technology services and software development. Okay, cool. How have you fared under the the last year in terms of the pandemic? How have things been in terms of that? I regret saying this to some extent, but it was actually a pretty good year for me uh, mm-hmm. because it did allow that close time to just hang back be in a forced remote situation. So we were not pushing against the grain, my partner and I at all. Everybody was working remote. And so all of a sudden, the talking point that we'd have to have with a lot of people about being a fully remote business and why that's okay for us, it just went away because everybody was doing it. And that was really nice as a lower point of friction. The other thing I'll mention is I was finishing up my MBA, which actually just finished up in 2021. And so that was Negative from that side because of not being able to be in person for a lot of the education there. Some of the positives, though, were that we, my classmates and I, a lot of other people in the program did have to get in the habit of connecting virtually more. And I think Mm -hmm. that was something that wasn't happening as much. And this is really critical, too, because it's a pretty global group of people. One of my early issues going into the the program that I went into was... How am I going to stay in touch with everybody? It's just, it's just hard to maintain connections when you know people are not in your life on a day-to-day basis. It broke us all apart, but it, it also brought us together in some virtual ways that I, I find the whole group is a little better at reaching out to each other and saying, hey, are you available for a 15-minute Zoom or 30-minute uh, chat? That just wouldn't have happened as much before. I'm trying to see the silver lining. There was a lot of negatives. I think some of our customers held back their spending a little bit because it was just a wait-and-see situation. Mm. One of our customers, our, our oldest and most loyal customers in the auto industry, going back to the original period in 2020 when lockdown started, I don't think there was a, a consistent thesis on what was going to happen with the auto industry. That turned out to be a record year. And now the used car surplus is so low that they're getting inflated prices. But I don't think anyone would have predicted that early on. So there was a little bit of slowness in terms of uh, people investing that way. In terms of the patterns of keeping up with your various friends and colleagues in the MBA program, what actually worked well for you? In person is always nice. And we had prioritized that. So it was a, just for some context, so it was a specifically global program. It was uh, half at uh, London Business School and half at Columbia Business School in New York. And so we would actually, prior to the pandemic, we would travel to each one monthly and, and spend a week together there. And that is absolutely the best part about the program. The fact that you're getting these pretty close relationships with people all over the world. Obviously, once the travel stopped, we were, in some cases, the people from the smaller countries or countries just where they didn't have the ability to travel into Europe or the US, they just had to stay put and take everything virtually. I had the good fortune of being in New York, so I could at least go to Columbia, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I didn't make it back to London uh, after February 2020. And I think everyone was shook up about it because we still had a good year of the program together. And they just made a you know priority to reach out. It's a lot of WhatsApp, as I'm sure you can imagine, which we are already doing. But then there was a little bit more of the impromptu Zoom conversations. And another surprising thing that happened was people started building other relationships that maybe had not been so strong before. You get cut off from you know this existing group of people that you hang out with a lot. 
and you just can't see them. So you're going to start building new relationships. So it's very strange to see that the people I spent all my time with in 2019 and 2020 in the class, I think were just with a few exceptions, very different from the ones that I spent more time with after that. And a lot of that just had to do with where were the travel restrictions. But you mean people locally where you live and not like in the student body in that sense? Well, it was that there was some local. So obviously, yes, there was, I saw the New York people more often. But there was also people who were just more able to travel, for instance, depending on what country they come from. People coming from the UK, France, or Spain had an easier time getting into the US versus, mm -hmm. say, we had several colleagues from Russia or Algeria. Those places were just less likely to be traveling. So I think that was the big change and really a, a shift that was mostly negative for them mm -hmm. uh, and only partially negative for us because at least we had a large cluster of people in, in New York. Locally, yeah. Interesting. In terms of the the business, how big is it? What 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 types of customers do you have? And you mentioned automotive. How does it work? The company is called Southport Technology Group, and we do custom software development. We're focused on a. I did another show about this recently, but we're focused on a non technical buyer, and some people hate working with this kind of customer. I really enjoy it, and I think there's a lot of advantages to it. This is. Typically, a company that may actually do anywhere up to $50 million in revenue annually. So they could, they could be a, a fairly sizable company, but their, their primary offering is probably not technology. Mm -hmm. And they have looked at the budget or at least have a back-of-the-napkin understanding of their budget that they wouldn't hire developers on staff. And that's our best kind of customer. One of the things I like about it is having worked, I've done agency work or worked by the hour in the past done what is effectively a high-end staff augmentation where we come in, we're paid very nice contract rates, but we work with the existing tech team. And a lot of that is covering up performance or staffing deficiencies in the organization. And so you end up in this team situation where you're not working with the people that would really help accelerate the project. Usually there's a problem that's brought you in the door. And some people really thrive in that environment. I think I do okay in it, but I think long-term the culture weighs me down a little bit. So what I've enjoyed about this is these are genuinely good businesses. They have a technology problem. They have even a good amount of money allocated to solve that. The, but the gap is they don't have the amount of money that it would take to hire a dev team, which for, for really good senior people, two to three really good senior people is going to be over a million dollars a year. So there's a huge gap between zero and a million dollars in your technology planning mm -hmm. that there's a lot of companies who need something right around there. And we like working on something more boring Things, something maybe with the back office or the operation side of the business. Oftentimes, the person we speak to in the organization, it's someone I refer to as the champion, mm -hmm. is, is, is not only thinking up projects on their side, but also thinking up ways to get us doing more projects for them. It's often an operations manager. Sometimes these companies will refer to this person as an IT director, but it's not the way you'd think of it, an IT director, say, at a a large firm, which has a very specific you know, set of responsibilities around network security. They're really more just the person, the man or woman who knows the most the about IT person. Yeah. the technology, the software. They're like a utility person who <laughs> does all the planning. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. We It's not industry specific. Auto insurance is one that's one of our oldest customers. We've really enjoyed working with them. We're getting a lot of green energy stuff. And I I can't tell if that's just because there's so much growth and need there, which is obviously a story. But the other side of it is I do know a few people in that industry. So those relationships have propelled us in that direction. Hmm.
Interesting. You mentioned before the call that you found flowcharts to be really helpful in this kind of remote work context. Let's dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. Why flowcharts? When are they helpful? Yeah, I think that was the original launching point for our conversation. Let me step back a moment and talk a bit about how we staff up a project. Mm -hmm. So I think you're familiar with the fact that hiring good developers is hard. And if you're not, I'm sure you'll talk to many guests who could, who could, who could agree with that statement. And so one of the things we've tried to do with our staffing up is utilize a model that's very common in open source software. And open source software, it seems almost completely bizarre to people who've not been in this industry. But the idea is that you have a code base that's out there and hundreds, if you're really lucky, maybe thousands of people all over the world can just make contributions to it. And because they're hopefully skilled developers or people following the spec, you can actually have meaningful contributions and these things can just get formed out of the ether. I, I think of it a little bit like a, a home building in Amish communities, which is just everybody from the village just starts coming and helping to build the home. Building the barn. The home is, yeah, exactly. The barn or the home is raised up. It's a similar thing. And it's very async and it's just cool. And a lot of great software is created this way. I think that makes some people nervous, but there's really just a lot of the amazing core software that we use in so many applications today is developed in this manner. Yeah. What I want to do is bring as much of that as possible to our staffing model. There's a couple of things that are really nice about it. One is it obviously allows you this asynchronous workflow, which helps us with time zones. And we work primarily with offshore developers. So I don't want to keep them on some kind of schedule with us. I do have to have some overlap just so we can communicate. So there's a, a certain degree east, usually right around Turkey, where I'll, it's harder to hire people uh, farther east than that just because of the time zone issue. Mm -hmm. But obviously Europe and South America is fine, especially when you're in the US. And they will make contributions just like an open source software developer will, except in this case, some will be private customer software. They'll make pull requests to it. And because they're working in this manner, I'm also treating them much more like that. So instead of you know having a morning meeting and saying, okay, here's the priorities for today and here's what we're doing, I need to almost have this sense of anonymity with the developer. And to do that, we use project management systems like anybody would. And the devil is in the details, but in this case, everything's in the details. So we try and load up these issues so that they could be picked up almost generically by any of the developers who work with us. And we do assign it to certain people. We, we have certain skill sets that we look for, obviously. But we're, we're trying to give them something that if they wanted to do this without talking to me, they probably could do it and get the pull request going. And then for that, you just need a whole another level of detail. The documentation is big. you got to be able to write a lot about what's going on, explain how a problem works. I use links to code all the time. So I'll use uh, GitHub has this great feature where they have links to a specific line in the code. And I'll point out, hey, here's what this is doing. You need to replicate this behavior or something like that. that that's been incredibly powerful. I use a lot of screencasts. I have a screencast on almost every issue, just so I can walk through something, talk through it. And that way, they're in an async way getting my actual feedback on what they're doing. And then the last one, and one of the most powerful tools, is flowcharts, which you brought up. And so we'll use Lucidchart or Draw.io. doesn't really matter which one you use. And we're creating flowcharts that are in a very simplistic decision tree format. So I think you're, you're probably familiar with that format, right? The blocks and yes, no diamonds. and that. Yeah, diamonds and rhomboids and parallelograms on an angle and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and arrows, exactly. of course, between them. Yeah, Lucidchart, I, 
I eschewed WYSIWYG tools for a long time. I always said I didn't want to use a WYSIWYG. I wanted to have a text-based flowchart. And there was actually, there is one open source library that has a text base where you can just create a little text file and it'll create the flowchart for you. But Lucidchart is really good. They've, they've improved the product so well that I can, I can build something very quickly with that. I, I have been using that mostly. And this idea was given to me probably a decade ago by a very talented UX designer, someone who had led a big UX team. And she just said, this is the way I get into every decision maker's workflow really quickly. And I start making them agree to an actual flowchart because this is going to expose all the side issues and all the other stuff they are not thinking about when they initially ask you for that shiny new. That sounds really interesting. So someone, let's say you're, let's say you're starting with someone and you're working with the decision maker. What do you ask them to do or how do you actually structure the conversation? Sure. I'm using flowcharts. Mostly, I'd say the 90% case is for my developers to give them information. Internally, yeah. I will do it to clarify with decision makers from time to time as well. Mm -hmm. And it depends how much ownership we have over the project versus them. There's a different, I'll say there's a different scale. There are certain people who are really particular about what they want. And then there's another kind of customer. And to be honest, I prefer this a bit, who, who lets us just take it and says, we'll go with best practice on this one. And that's mm -hmm. really nice because it just saves us time, saves us iteration cycles. And because we done it before we can give them pretty good stuff but what i would do with a decision maker is they'll come to you and they'll have a happy path version of a feature so they say this should accept apple pay i want users to be able to use apple pay now to buy this item and what they're not thinking about is what are all the attributes of that the flowchart gets into okay if the apple pay transaction is accepted yes you pay that's happy path but on that no block on the on the rhombus is going to be well. What if it doesn't get accepted? Do we allow users to save their you know Apple Pay into the profile, or is it something they enter new all the time? Are we you know allowing them three transaction limit and then saying hey you got to choose another method? Right? Do we have some kind of scam protection for people who might be able to might be trying to use Apple Pay that's not theirs? I haven't even integrated with that API. There might be other considerations as well. Mm. What kind of error notifications are we giving people? Are we emailing people later about failed transactions? So you'll have what, when the mind of the stakeholder was just a line, do this, then this. It becomes a much more complicated web, mm -hmm. but also pretty well-defined. And I think it's the simplicity of it. Because the blocks are yes or no, a thing happened, you really have to, you have to hone in on what, what happens when that specific problem happens and not a kind of uh, generalized view. I, I do think a lot of people defining requirements and customers can get, they can get lost in abstraction when they want to talk about a problem mm -hmm. uh, or they'll do the, the famous, oh, just do it the way Facebook does it. Of course, you want to tell them they have one of these flowcharts back there too. There's a giant decision tree. There's probably a team of you know five or six people who built this thing. So they're going through the same process and they're making different trade-offs than you because yes. maybe they have a more intimate relationship with Apple and they actually do have some backdoor into the security API or something like that. I don't think Apple provides backdoors, but it's just starting to think about why you wouldn't be able to do it the way LinkedIn does it or why you could. And then what is that way? And then let's write that down on the flowchart too. Hmm. And it's harder to argue with at the end. And by the way, it's just great. It's deliverable too. So you give that to the developer. Okay. Here's what we talked through with the stakeholder. Go build this. And they understand it. It's like magic for them because 
most code is written in that linear decision-like format if else statements is primarily what you're working with. Okay, so with decision makers, it's more of a requirements gathering type tool in a way. Yeah. Have you ever used it to explore how they themselves make decisions? Or is that getting a bit too meta? It is pretty meta. Yeah, I don't, I can't say that I have. Wouldn't be anything wrong with that. I think that's an exercise I'd go through with a closer collaborator, Mm -hmm. probably more so than a customer, but certainly someone who I'm working closely with and want to get a gauge of what they're actually prioritizing. That would be helpful. And one of the things I've started to start to think about in terms of the way we're looking at customers, which might be related to this is what is their level of defensiveness? Mm -hmm. So how bad does an issue impact them in terms of how they view the system and how do we tailor a solution to better help them with that? I've done very generic up until now because I I, I do want to try and standardize things as much as possible. It's just something I'm constantly trying to improve on, but I, I would like to also have a risk scale that I apply mm-hmm. to different customers. And I think the decision tree could help because it would say, if this person really wants the error notifications and states to be well-defined, then they're probably very concerned about these things happening. As opposed to someone who says, oh, we'll just figure it out when the customers email us. Right? And, th- and that really is two different personalities that you get. We had a you know a small issues for one customer is, oh yeah, no problem, they'll just email us. And for another customer, it's, well, this is a big deal, right? Part of that has to do with the way they perceive their own business or their brand. I think it's also the kind of customers they're working with. So if they're mostly consumer-oriented or have a, a fragmented base of businesses that they work with, then stuff happens. It's not a big issue. Mm-hmm. The companies we've worked with who are delivering a product to larger businesses, much larger than themselves and obviously much larger than us, banks, places like that, they want the systems to work. And, yeah. and be what that means, yeah. exactly. We don't take shortcuts on security, for instance, but I think there is just a, a trade-off on stability questions. Do we do a one-week testing cycle or a three-week testing cycle? That's up to you. You're going to have to decide how slowly you want to release this, but the three-week will be safer for your customer experience. So I think that's the, that is the one area where I'd use it because I am starting to think a bit more about these risk profiles that people have. Okay, so then let's flip to the other side. So in terms of internal processes, yeah, for clearly for requirements, communication, <laughs> that kind of stuff, that's to some extent where, where, where they came from in the first place. What about for things like internal company processes that aren't related to, to code or delivery or that kind of thing for you? Have yeah. you? Do you use them at all or how does that work? Starting to. So... This is, this is interesting now. So we have two sides of our business, right? My, my day-to-day is running the Southport Technology Group arm. And my partner is involved in a business that is working on acquisitions. So we're, we're you know, buying small software businesses, either mm-hmm. you know, buying the company or just buying them as an asset purchase. Yeah. And that's a fascinating different area. It's obviously super related. and We're working together on it. He steers the ship more day-to-day. And one of the big things we do there is we use analysts and also summer interns to work the process. And because it's a pretty tight-knit sourcing process, there's a lot of procedures they've got to learn really quick to ramp up on. So we're, yeah, we're building out the knowledge base. So we've had a wiki going pretty much since we started with the intern program. And we're going to move on to some new interns this summer when the summer term starts after schools are out. And my hope is to just get them up and running in about a week. 
Mm -hmm. And the big thing we do is we source a lot of businesses. So we are pulling down, it's just, it's a classic funnel type process. So we're pulling down maybe like about 10,000 companies and just saying, does the company match on a number of filters? Now the filters can be listed out on the spreadsheet, but there are some of the more nuanced things about one, I think visualizations are great. I just think people like them, mm-hmm. but just how certain are you about something? Cause there's ambiguous. So you could say, let's filter a company on, it's gotta be in the U S or Canada. Okay. Pretty easy to figure that one out. You know, if you don't have the data point, okay, fine. You can't figure it out. But beyond that, it's, it's pretty easy. But then there's, we want to have certain kind of customer segment. That's a little more ambiguous, right? I can't quite tell if this product is serving, you know, a business buyer or a consumer or a prosumer buyer. And in those situations, we want to have flowcharts for them. The interns in particular, just look at it and say, how certain of, about this decision are you? And always use simple scales, odd numbers. Anyone in the creative arts will tell you that. And so it's one to three or one to five usually. So are you really certain? Are you medium certain? Are you not certain? And on the really certains, we just want them to go with it because it, it would just waste our time to take a second look at it. On the medium, toss up. And maybe we have them weigh it on a number of other factors. Is it in a niche we really like? Is it, mm-hmm. Does it look like it's got good marketing or some other characteristic that we're looking for the business? Yes. And on the low end, you say, you got to throw it over the fence. You got to throw it over to us. Like you have no certainty about this. And we're trying to bucket these things so that our interns work with scripts because we, we've developed a lot of automation so that they don't have to manually do this stuff. They'll just run a script and we'll pull down the data and, and ask them to rate things. And we want to have the script then be able to say exactly what the flowchart would say. I'm very certain. I'm, I'm medium certain. I'm not very certain. And then do something accordingly. So there's a weird way in which that flowchart would allow us both to design the actual system the interns are going to use, but also inform them as to how they're supposed to make the decision and, and think about what they're doing. And it is a human tendency to just go for the middle one and mm-hmm. give people three options. So you want to also create an incentive for them to go high or low. And sometimes that just means removing the middle option as well or you know, trying to just make sure it's a rare choice. Or having four. Although, yeah, even numbers, a lot of the creative people say that's a bad idea. But I don't know. Maybe I should try it. <laughs> We're big into experimenting, so we will try it. Yeah. Do they also create these or modify the ones that you have? Or is it more just something that you thought about? And then, like, how does how do these things live, yeah. so to speak? That's a good. that's a good question. I want to get them more into it. So far, it, it has been a pretty one-way street. Mm-hmm. Uh, my partner will do this. He comes from a user research design background. He's very familiar with this and he will go more in depth for different kinds of tools as well. Tools that I'm not even super familiar with. My, one of my things is I'm, I'm, I'm like an inch deep and a mile wide. I'm not a flowchart expert, but I do use the tool aggressively in terms of how we get these process, these software processes done. That's probably the only topic I'm really deep on is actually building out the software. But I want them to do it. I'm like an evangelist in my own company for screencasting. I say, put it in a video, just make it easy. And then also any kind of visual chart for it. Say so you can write five paragraphs or you can give me a pretty quick flow chart on this. It's not hard to do. And I think the proof of that is if they ask for the license, I'll obviously give it to them. I don't want to give people the license if they you know, are not going to use something anyway. But, mm-hmm. but if someone is really, you know, excelling at doing that, it's fine. 
And the screencasting at this point is Lucidchart is very affordable. And actually, I think the free version would give them a little while. But the screencasting is also pretty much free at this point. I don't know if you've seen the new Google Thread.it product. No, I haven't actually. It's very nice. It's uh, just it's a Chrome extension, and it's it's now my screencasting tool. What I do is it just very quickly let you record a video. Obviously, record your screen. You can record your camera too, or you can take it off. You can be in the corner. You would if you want to narrate over the screen, and then it integrates directly with your Google Workspace organization. So it can create a link that's only shareable within the organization or a public link for the video. And that's pretty much all I ever need. I'm just creating tons and tons of videos, putting them into different issues in the project management system, wherever. So you just drop a link and then people can watch it pretty much. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So going back uh, again on flowcharts. <laughs> so you mentioned that you use them to reduce Reduce the uncertainty around how to classify things. Curious about any particular cases where that happened. What does that mean exactly? Sure. Here's a good example. And, and I didn't quite use the decision tree flow for this. It was slightly different. Yeah, and sure. that's probably good to highlight here too, is that you don't have to be super strict. I like those decision trees a lot because a lot of times you are dealing with a linear process where things happen and then XX. But... This one was actually about a permission system, and it was a, needless to say, it was a complex permissioning system. So the customer had spent hours explaining it to me. I had intuited it. A lot of it had to do with the unique characteristics of their business model. So think about the generic permission system is there's an anonymous user, there's a member, and then there's an admin. And maybe above that, there's a super admin. And it's just, a, it's a Russian doll of permissions where they're all, the super admin has everything and everybody below him has slightly less. And once you get into business use case specific permissions, it starts getting really weird. And especially when different kinds of users based on the kind of user that they are can do different things and should do different things, especially when you have a two-sided market, which was the case for this system. And what happened was the industry is, solar power. And there was two sides of a transaction. The permissions were set up according that each side did different things depending on what it was. And on top of that, there was also just a high level administrator and they could do whatever on the system. So I would have issue after issue with the developers saying, why is this different than this one over here? And I would try and be clear, there was two sets of issues, right? and say, this is for this side of the, the transaction, and this is for the other side of the transaction. And they would still just come back to me, oh yeah, I don't know why this behavior is different than over here, these should be the same thing. They're both users, they're both admin. I said, well, this is a different kind of admin, this is a different kind of user. And so what I did is I, I just finally bit the bullet, did the full-on chart that just showed, here's how all the inheritance patterns work on the permissions. And repeatedly referenced that, tagged that on about 15 different issues, and all of a sudden understood. Like the the realization was that the the container unit for the the permission was the kind of organization that user was in, mm -hmm. and they had not really internalized that there was just a big difference between those those two kinds of organizations and why they would be different. And then on top of that, in addition to the hierarchy itself, we had a certain amount of description text at the bottom, just stating this is what these things are, just to let you know, right in the you know, theoretical transaction here. Here's what side of it they're representing. Mm -hmm. So I said that was a good that was a good recent one. Beyond that, it's just 
it's the day-to-day experience of I, the thing I always say is you can solve this in the requirements or you can solve it in chat. And so there's a certain kind of person who just likes to have their day broken up into a million pieces by everyone asking them for requirements all the time. I, I have no problem if people have genuine questions about it, but to the extent that I can get them as much detail up front, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So creating that flowchart is the thing I'll do before I even tell the developer about the issue. And it's partly out of respect for them so that they don't have to spend their whole you know, day trying to figure track out down information. Yeah. yeah. Listen, there's a certain kind of person. You know, sometimes you're so overwhelmed in your business that you just hire somebody and you say, listen, I don't know what's going on. I need you to track down a bunch of information. But the trade-off there is you have to pay that person a lot of money and they have to have a level of thinking that goes beyond their specific skill set. So they have to know a ton about your customers. They have to know a ton about the internals of your business. They have to have an appropriateness meter in terms of the kinds of things they're asking about or the kind of things they're doing. It's just not something I can rely on any developer to do. Instead, what I want to do is focus on hiring developers for the very specific skill of being good at programming. Mm -hmm. And then if they have growth that they want to do in some higher area, that's fine too. We can have that conversation. But the vast majority of these guys are coming to me saying, what I really want to do is piece together all the various requirements coming from all your customer emails and the nuances of their business. They want to just get to work on something. There is money to be made there. The people who are willing to do that, that legwork and, and piece it together, that's, a, that's an extremely valuable skill. But in my case, we want to keep that money, frankly, on the company side, on the management side, because we just feel like we owe it to our developers to to give them clear requirements. Cool. Yeah. Where do people find out more or get in touch with you or reach out to do that? So you can check out Southport Technology Group at stg.software. And then Southport Ventures is just southportventures.com. And you'll see those two sites look fairly similar. People can hit me up on LinkedIn if they like, Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. Happy to have a discussion. I'm at Trevor underscore UN, so just my name with the underscore in the middle. And yeah, I'm in New York, so people are around. That's, a, that's another good reason to give me a shout. Yeah, that's great. That was definitely a great conversation with Trevor, and I really enjoyed geeking out with him on this particular topic. I think specifically with flowcharts, I walked into the conversation expecting there to be a more general use for it. It does seem it is more about requirements, elicitation, for lack of a better term, but I think if you do use it for defining processes within a company, I think that is a useful way to possibly have it to structure a process in a way that everyone kind of immediately gets even if it is quite complicated so tune in next week we will be up at episode 50 and i've got a surprise coming up for you see you then Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Remote Teams podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn with any feedback or thoughts that you have for a future show.